everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my producer here in the studio with me. And today we are diving into another haunted, in fact, extremely haunted location known as the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Very excited for this one. I love these haunted places, and I know many of you do too. I find them so interesting to dive into the dark history of these places. I mean, it's in the name itself, Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> that says it all. That should give you a little bit of insight into what was going on inside this place. I mean, some of the things that people endured in this location are uh, truly blow your mind. The fact that they used to do these types of things to people in an effort to help them, of right. course. So that's what we're going to be diving into today. But before we do, I wanted to briefly mention that in our last episode, one of the number one comments we received from those watching on YouTube was that they noticed an orb literally just floating to the side of me right yep. here, like right in this area. And at first when I was watching, I was like, okay, let me think of every logical possible <laughs> yeah. explanation for what this thing is. I was like, is it dust? It's not dust. Cause you would no. see dust in all of our videos. If right. that was the case. And we would notice that ourselves if there's dust flying around everywhere, mm-hmm. most likely. But this thing is large. This thing's like maybe like a softball size. Yeah. It's orb. It's like a good, like, I don't know, like that big. Yeah. Like a biggest orb I've seen like on camera. Cause I know it's crazy. And it's like, maybe because it was like, hovering like right in front of this black tapestry behind me that you were able to see it really well but the fact just our normal ass camera picks up this floating orb and it's actually seen in multiple shots yeah in the last episode at different time stamps that are minutes apart yeah it comes and goes and it moves it's literally kind of like moving around and it's interesting that i'm literally talking about all these (laughs) metaphysical (laughs) concepts and stuff and it's literally just right next to me yeah i have no idea that something's here with us. We'll put some clips in for those that missed it. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, also for those just listening, definitely go check out the episodes yeah. on YouTube because we all, there's always good stuff to, to see and watch. Yeah. And uh, those who aren't aware, uh, you know, an orb usually indicates like a spirit transporting, uh, not in its like physical apparition form, but you know, it's way of moving around. There you so. go. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's anything malicious or, uh, you know something here that's trying to harm us in any way i think it's just hanging out in here and i don't know if it's just from the things that we've talked about on the show that it's just sort of drawn here and it feels Mm -hmm. comfortable here but uh yeah we're sharing this space with something else Mm -hmm. and it definitely explains like a lot of the paranormal activity that we've had in the past that kind of confirms it we finally captured its physical form i mean yeah or maybe there's more (laughs) (laughs) so you know whatever is here Feel free to make your presence known during this episode. I mean, we're going to be diving into uh, some haunted shit in this one. So if you are interested to uh, reveal yourself again, please do. And uh, yeah, maybe knock a few times while you're at it. Tap on Josh's shoulder. (laughs) Yeah, that would be crazy. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for like it to, to actually physically... You know, do touch something. you or, or something. Yeah, but it just seems like it's peacefully hanging out with yeah. us. So it's not knocking anything about. down. Or yeah, I'm not. I'm not too worried about it. I mean, I think some people would probably be be freaked out <laughs> yeah. by it, but 
hey, you know what? I got a Ouija board. Maybe we'll get the Ouija board out and try to make contact with whatever's here. I mean, oh, good Lord. And, and see what happens. I don't know. We'll have to see. But yeah, I just thought I would bring that up because I was just kind of blown away, honestly, mm-hmm. where people are like, guys, look at this. There's an orb. I was like, no, yeah. like, whatever. It's probably just like a camera glare or something. Yeah. But nope, there's a there's a fucking orb there yeah. and there's no other explanation other than this thing just manifested right. itself right here. I mean, there's clearly nothing behind me today. I mean, you can Mm-mm. just a black tapestry. So. And it's weird that maybe it was only caught on camera because the camera was recording. I don't know. Yeah. It's just weird how. Well, I uh, I didn't notice it just sitting here because I have this that angle that it was caught on right, camera. Right, that's from, true. So that's I didn't true. See You're it always looking over here. Yeah. yeah. Bizarre, man. I know. We live in a <laughs> very mystical world, that's for sure. So yeah, definitely, definitely got something happening in here. But, anyways, the other thing I wanted to bring up before we jump into the episode is that my wellness and CBD brand, Higher Love Wellness, we actually just slashed our prices 10 to 20% permanently. Things have been going so well, thanks to many of you, that we have been able to pass on savings that we received from people that were doing our shipping and packing prior that we now do in house. So we're able to save some money on that. And in return, we're actually able to lower prices on all of our products, which is cool. So everything's like 10, 20% off from where it used to be price-wise. And that is permanent. This is not a sale and we'll still have sales from time to time, but prices have been slashed quite a bit. So if you're interested in checking out CBD or any other type of wellness product, definitely go to higherlovewellness.com and you can use code HOMIES for an additional 10% off of anything on the store. So definitely check it out. CBD is really good for helping you chill out, helping you just get through the day, sleep better at night. It's a really, really wonderful and all natural product to consume. With that being said, let's go ahead and get into this episode of Lights Out that is brought to you by Raycon Green Chef Care of and Plush Care. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It's important to note that early colonists in North America didn't have any knowledge or understanding of mental illness. When people displayed behaviors that were deemed troubling, unconventional, or even just plain out annoying, they were often accused of being possessed by demons or the devil. I mean, think about it. The knowledge that they had on a lot of different things was all based on religious texts that they had. And the information containing the those was what they used as sort of the facts to go by. There wasn't all this research into the brain and mental illness like we have today. So, you know, they just take the explanations of what the religious text says and apply it to the person. But modern psychologists have studied historical documents from the Salem witch trials of 1692 and determined that many who were accused of being witches were likely just mentally ill. Others were displaying normal behaviors that just didn't fit with the conventions of the time, such as women wanting to be more independent. Even after colonists stopped burning people at the stake for being witches, the treatment of the mentally ill didn't really improve. Some were cared for by family members who had no idea how to help. Symptoms of mental illness were embarrassing and shameful to family. So many people were locked in a single room, an attic, a secret shed, or just a hole in the ground. This happened so often. It's honestly crazy because it's like, how does that help them? It's like we'd rat instead of helping the person and providing a more comfortable life for them, we're going to fucking torture them and make them a hundred times worse by locking them in solitary confinement. Essentially imagine being locked into a hole in the ground just as a sane, normal person. Like that's going to do a lot to you, but to also have some type of serious mental illness on top of it, it's only going to make things worse. 
And if no one could take care of the person, they were just locked away in a prison with violent criminals where they might be chained to the wall with no clothes, no access to a bathroom, and no ability to clean themselves. In the 1770s, the first facilities were built for the insane, and they were modeled after prisons and weren't much better. There was no effort to treat or rehabilitate residents, and the point was to separate them from society and just lock them away and forget about it. One of the reasons there was no effort to treat mental illness is because people at the time believed there was no cure for insanity, that if you're just crazy, you're just crazy, and that's it. There's no way to change that. In the 1800s, things finally started to change. And one of the pioneers of this change was Dorothea Dix. Dorothea's father was an abusive alcoholic and her mother suffered from severe mental illness. So she was responsible for raising her twin brothers. Despite her difficult upbringing, Dorothea was very ambitious and smart. At just 15 years old, she opened a private school for girls in Worcester, Massachusetts. And five years later, she opened a second location in Boston. She seemed to be destined to spend her life fighting for women's education, but in 1841, everything changed. She visited a jail in Cambridge and saw for herself how the mentally ill inmates were being treated. They were left naked, chained to stone walls in a cell with no ventilation, no heat, even in the middle of winter. So she exposed what she saw to the public forcing Massachusetts lawmakers to make serious changes and commit additional funds to improve the conditions. After this experience, Dorothea became a fierce advocate for change. She traveled throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia, touring prisons and exposing how mentally ill people were being treated. In 1848, the first state hospital for the mentally ill was opened in Trenton, New Jersey, thanks to Dorothea's hard work. Spending her life witnessing the horrific living conditions of innocent people, had a deep impact on her. She suffered multiple breakdowns, and in the early 1880s, she was admitted to the Trenton State Hospital. She lived in a private apartment and died six years later. During her career, Dorothea worked closely with Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, a medical doctor who designed facilities for the mentally ill. The state hospital where Dorothea spent her final years was designed using the Kirkbride plan, which he described as a humane building method. Thomas was born on Pennsylvania Quaker Farm in 1809, and his father didn't think he could handle the rough life of a farmer. Thomas was small and frail, but also highly intelligent and compassionate, so his father encouraged him to become a doctor. He went to school and graduated with a degree in medicine from the University of Pennsylvania in 1832, and he planned to become a surgeon, which he believed was the most lucrative and prestigious career path for him. He applied for residency at the Pennsylvania Hospital, but he wasn't accepted. Instead, he accepted a residency at Friends Asylum for the Insane in the small town of Frankfurt. The asylum was run by Quakers and had much more progressive ways of treating the mentally ill than other facilities at the time. Instead of operating like a prison, Friends Asylum featured a collaborative family atmosphere. Patients were never restrained or locked up, and they participated in mental and physical activities to keep their minds active and stimulated which this impressed Thomas, but he had no interest in spending his career treating the insane. He still wanted to be a surgeon, so when a spot opened up at Pennsylvania Hospital, he jumped at the opportunity. He went on to have a successful career as a surgeon and in private practice, and he had a reputation for being compassionate with patients just as his father believed he would. 
But his early residency at Friends Asylum turned out to be the most impactful event in his personal and professional life. In his personal life, he ended up marrying a patient he treated for mental illness and raised a family with her. He also survived an attempted murder by another patient. But then his career took a turn in 1840 when he was offered the position of superintendent at the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. The position was just as lucrative and prestigious as his previous work. So he said, you know what? What the heck? I'll accept. There, he completely immersed himself in the history and current practices around the world, treating the mentally ill. He was mostly interested in the facilities and how they were designed and built and how they affected patient care. Building on the work of Dorothea Dix, Thomas developed a theory that the environment of the facility could be the most effective way to treat mentally ill patients. He believed patients should have more freedom instead of being locked in cells or rooms. To get better, they needed a freedom to roam, control over how they spent their day, and access to activities to stimulate their minds. They should have also have access to plenty of fresh air and sunshine. And by making these improvements to the building, he theorized that the mentally ill patients could be cured. Eventually, he managed to convince the hospital governors to fund his work and build a new facility using the Kirkbride plan. His building design included long hallways, tall windows, 12-foot ceilings, and cross ventilation to let in a natural breeze. This humane building method caught on, and the Kirkbride plan influenced the construction of over 300 facilities in North America. And one of these facilities was a trans-Allegheny lunatic asylum to be built in present-day Weston, West Virginia. West Virginia wasn't a state yet, so at the time the property was located in Virginia. The plan was authorized by the Virginia General Assembly in the early 1850s, and Thomas was a consultant on the project and worked closely with renowned architect Richard Snowden Andrews. They sought to create a place of restoration for the mentally ill, and rather than focusing on security like a prison, they focused on things like beauty, nature, and self-sufficiency. Seems pretty uh, plausible to me. Why that would make somebody feel better than being in prison, put them in nature. It's going to make them feel more at home. Definitely. That's how you rehab people. I mean, honestly, prison should be like outside. Why don't they make inmates sleep in tents, you know, right. instead of cells? It'd be better for their state of mind than oh, yeah. being in a locked concrete cell. The wings of the facility were designed in a staggered formation in order to give each space the most natural light and fresh air possible. Patients would each have their own room and privacy making the asylum feel more like a home than a hospital. The structure borrowed concepts from the Gothic and Tudor revival styles of architecture. From the outside, it looked like a fancy boarding school, not an asylum. The property was in a rural area with plenty of land, and the extensive grounds included green lawns and colorful gardens, as well as everything needed to be completely self-sustaining. Construction started in late 1858, and the crew members were mostly prisoners and slave laborers. Later, expert stonemasons were recruited from Germany and Ireland for more ornate aspects of the facility. But then the Civil War broke out in the April of 1861, and by June, all work not directly related to the war was stopped, including construction. On June 30th at 5 a.m. in the morning, Union soldiers from the north entered Weston, and the troops were commanded to search the town for any Confederate sympathizers and arrest them. But the real reason they were there was to rob the Weston branch of the Exchange Bank of Virginia. 
A captain and two armed soldiers seized $27,000 in gold from the vault, which is the equivalent of over $833,000 today. 30000 of this gold has been deposited by the state government to pay the laborers and crew working on the asylum, which further obstructed the project. The asylum was still in the early stages of construction, and the wing furthest to the south was completed, and the basement and foundation for the large central structure were also nearly completed. The Union soldiers turned the partially constructed asylum into Camp Tyler, establishing the city as a major military post. They used the southern wing for barracks and the foundation for stables. They didn't maintain their hold on Camp Tyler for the rest of the war. In 1862 and again in 1863, Confederate soldiers raided the asylum, and Union soldiers were temporarily forced out. During a third Confederate raid in 1864, they stole over $5,000 in gold and all the food and clothing from the southern wing that had been stocked for the first round of asylum patients. By the time the war ended the following year, West Virginia had been admitted as a U.S. state, and one of the new state's first orders of business was to prioritize completing the asylum. The facility had been renamed the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, but later it was changed again to Weston State Hospital. Surrounding areas were devastated by the war for the next decade, but the town of Weston thrived, all thanks to the asylum. Construction would continue for several years, but the first patients were admitted in October 1864. The facility could house 250 patients who each got their own rooms, and the property had everything needed for the asylum to be self-sustaining. There was a large vegetable garden, a working farm, dairy cows and ice plant, a gas well, and even a cemetery. A coal mine and water reservoir were nearby, and all the clothes, fabrics, mattresses, and furniture were locally made too. The patients were encouraged to assist in these areas to learn a trade. And the reasons for a patient admissions were tracked in a logbook. Reasons listed in the first logbook included feebleness of intellect, congestion of brain, grief seduction, and novel reading. Even though this facility was built using Kirkbride's humane building method, asylums were still a place to stash the unwanted. Family members left relatives there for things like laziness, menstrual derangement, superstition, overstudy of religion, masturbation, and tuberculosis. The first patient admitted was a housewife left there by her husband, and her reason for admission was listed as domestic trouble. Can you imagine if that was a thing today, that if you had a spat with your wife or significant other, that you could just drop them off at the asylum and say, yeah, she's crazy. Wow. We all, all of our asylums would be packed <laughs> yeah, full. Dude. People would be dropping off each other at asylums all day. Right. Every day. It's just wild. It's like such a different time that they just mm. were like, yep, I don't like you I'm talking back too much, taking you to the asylum. Right. Meanwhile, there's people there that are like actually seriously mentally yeah. ill and, and whatever else. And you're just dropping her off there because of, you know, you're having a domestic dispute. Like, yeah, it's just so crazy. It is just such a different time. Unsurprisingly, many of these patients had no symptoms of mental illness when they were admitted, but that often changed during their stay. Wonder why the four story central unit and its 200 foot clock tower were completed in 1871, which included offices in a large ballroom. A separate unit for black patients was completed in 1873. 
When construction was finally completed, the total cost was $725,000, which was more than $300,000 over budget. The structure was 1,295 feet long with two and a half miles of hallways. The walls were two and a half feet thick, making the rooms virtually soundproof. In 1881, the same year the facility was officially opened, there was a massive influx of patients. Doctors were diagnosing mental illnesses in record numbers, and the number of patients in the asylum reached 750, which was three times the intended capacity. The employees couldn't keep up with the demand, and the peaceful environment that it was supposed to be devolved into absolute chaos. Instead of one patient per room, four or five residents were shoved together sleeping on cots or even the bare floor. Some people were born in the asylum and later died there, spending their entire lives locked away. The focus gradually shifted from rehabilitation and treatment to keeping all the patients in their rooms, just like a prison. Funding for the facility continued to decline each year, making things worse. Despite the lack of funding, several auxiliary buildings were added, including a tuberculosis building. As soon as a new structure was finished, it was immediately filled with incoming patients. Some of those patients rebelled and set several fires over the years. The worst was started on the fourth floor of the main building in October 1935 and cost $155,000 to repair the damage. By 1938, the asylum was six times over capacity with 1,661 patients, and the logbooks now included patients admitted for alcohol and drug abuse, epilepsy, and mental defects. Some of the other listed reasons included asthma, dementia, egotism, bad whiskey, indigestion, loss of arm, change of life, doubt about his mother's ancestors, fits, childbirth, disappointed love, death of sons in war, snuff eating, and a desertion of a husband. The employees completely lost control at this point and could no longer keep the patients confined to their rooms. Low-level orderlies were in charge of routine care, and they were vastly outnumbered. There was only enough food produced on the property to provide for 300 people, and as more patients piled in, there was less and less to go around, and many patients suffered from malnutrition. In 1949, there were over 1,800 patients crammed into the facility. A journalist from the Charleston Gazette reported on the overcrowding and poor condition of the asylum, which led to public outrage. Because there weren't enough beds or furniture, and many of the buildings didn't have enough lighting or heat, and the patients often went unbathed, and it seemed that no one had enough time to keep the patients or the facility clean. Within a few years, the number of patients shot up to 2,400, nearly 10 times over capacity. More auxiliary buildings were hastily built to meet the demands, including a kitchen, dining area, laundry facility, storage, and a forensics building. More patients were forced to sleep on the floor in freezing cold rooms and hallways. And the floors, walls, and windows were all filthy, and the windows were also covered with toxic mold. The buildup of grime on the glass blocked out much of the natural light. The wallpaper had deteriorated over the years and was peeling off the walls. What was left was torn down by frantic patients. When patients complained or bothered the staff, they were locked in solitary confinement. If they still didn't comply, they were then chained to the walls. Some of them were left in chains for months at a time. 
Orderlies also locked patients in confinement cribs or Utica cribs. These were long and narrow boxes, only about 15 to 30 inches high, and there were open slats on the top and along the sides. Once locked inside, the patient was trapped and didn't have enough room to even sit up slightly. If a patient was violent, loud, or just not doing what they were told, they could be locked in a crib for hours or days at a time. The fear of being locked inside a confinement crib was enough to drive patients mad. And once they were out, some patients had difficulty walking or were completely nonverbal, which the workers considered success. This was a successful treatment. Restraint chairs were used to control excessively violent patients, and this chair was slightly reclined back and forced the patient to sit perfectly upright. Straps were used to restrain the ankles, waist, wrists, shoulders, and neck. And patients were left in these chairs for hours or days without food or water, and they were often shoved in a corner and forgotten about. Being stuck in this position for long periods caused injuries, blood clots, even death, and patients who had no way to defend themselves were subjected to torture by the staff and other patients. At this time, there was still very little progress being made in the treatment of mental illness. The asylum was supposed to treat patients through the humane building, but the plan had completely fallen apart. Families were desperate to help their loved ones, or just to find somewhere that they could take them to. And from here, it only gets worse. So we'll be right back with that here in just a moment. Let's talk about the different types of therapies. And I say that with air quotes because you'll see that these are really not therapeutic at all. Because these therapies that were done in the asylum were considered humane and effective by the standards of the time. But looking back, it was downright cruel and torturous. During hydrotherapy, patients were completely immersed in water for hours or even days at a time. Depending on the condition being treated, the water was either kept hot or ice cold. Bloodletting, a practice that dated back to the ancient Egyptians, was still common. One of the early theories of the practice was based on menstruation, which Hippocrates believed purged women of bad humors. Based on this theory, large veins and arteries were severed to drain a patient's blood, or they used a bloodletting tool with steel blades called a scarificator. This thing looks absolutely terrifying. Can't even imagine applying this to my skin. But doctors during this time believed causing seizures was an effective treatment option for many patients, and they accomplished this in a number of ways. Seizures could be caused by administering high doses of chemicals like metrazole. And after taking metrazole, patients experience extreme panic and then sheer terror, followed by a violent seizure. In the asylum, if a patient suspected a dose of metrazole was coming, they would frantically run screaming from the room to avoid the inevitable feeling of terror and the metrazole-induced convulsions. Insulin shock therapy or insulin coma therapy was used to drop a patient's blood sugar to zero to induce daily comas and cause seizures. Electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy is one of the most well-known early treatments for mental illness. An electrical current is sent through the brain using an electroconvulsive therapy machine to induce generalized seizures. This was frequently used to treat schizophrenia, depression, and homosexuality, which was considered a mental illness until 1973. In 1935, a breakthrough treatment for mental illness was introduced. The horrific lobotomy. The lobotomy 
was a surgical technique that partially severed the frontal lobes from deeper parts of the brain. Many believe this experimental procedure could cure even the worst symptoms of mental illness. Dr. Walter Freeman and Dr. James Watts were leading advocates for the procedure, which was soon embraced by the scientific and medical communities. They quickly went from experimental to mainstream, and the scientific breakthrough was called a miracle cure by the media. And the inventor of the lobotomy even won the Nobel Prize in 1949. Walter and James claimed that a lobotomy could cure virtually any mental illness, from extreme insanity to everyday worries. They became famous for their advocacy work, and Walter knew how to work with the media to get continuous positive coverage. One outlet even said, cutting the brain cures the soul. In the movies, lobotomies are often portrayed as experiments being done by evil doctors or as punishments to control unruly patients. But in reality, lobotomies were considered a normal and effective treatment for many issues. Today, doctors believe we know about 1% of what the human brain is doing. Because there are 100 billion neurons and trillions and trillions of connections all happening at once, and modern science isn't even close to unraveling the mysteries of higher cognitive functions, like thinking, feeling, and emotion, that are all affected by mental illness. With so much still unknown, it's hard to imagine responsible trained physicians thinking it was a good idea to start cutting into some person's brain tissue. But in the United States alone, about 50,000 lobotomies were done on patients of all ages. Walter performed about 3,500 of those himself, perfecting his technique at the asylum where there was no need to get consent from patients. How f- that's just crazy. Yeah, so fucked up. Just like drag you in there and start working on your cutting your brain apart because they they wanted to. Because they believed it was used to treat hallucinations, obsessive behaviors, depression, suicidal ideation, and anxiety and behavior problems in soldiers returning from war. It was also a common treatment for intractable pain, a term from the time that meant chronic pain. One example of an intractable pain patient was a woman named Anna Ruth Channels. Anna Ruth had suffered from severe headaches for years that no treatment could help. When she met with Dr. Walter Freeman, he assured her that he could cure her pain with a lobotomy. At the time, Anna Ruth had two young daughters, a three-month-old and a toddler, and she was suffering daily and barely able to care for herself, let alone her children. So she agreed to the lobotomy, because, you know, doctor's recommending it, so doctor probably knows best, right? So she hoped that maybe he could cure her headaches. And technically, the lobotomy was a success. Her headaches were gone. But after the procedure, she was just a shell of a person. She had forgotten how to do almost everything. She couldn't feed or bathe herself and didn't even know how to use the bathroom. So she had to literally relearn everything. Headaches gone. Forget how to be a functioning human. I'll take the headaches. I'll take the headaches any day. It's just, it's just wild to me because I just think about like, man, I'm glad I wasn't born in that time period. I know. And with Anna Ruth, because she had to literally relearn how to do everything, she wasn't able to care for her daughters. So they were sent to live in foster homes during much of their childhood. Walter met with Anna Ruth and after the procedure and interviewed her. Despite everything she lost, he still considered her case a great success and called her outcome excellent. Anna Ruth was just an ordinary person, so it makes sense that her story didn't reach beyond her family. 
and didn't change how the medical community viewed lobotomies. But some lobotomy patients weren't unknown to the public. In 1941, Joseph P. Kennedy read about lobotomies and thought it could help his daughter Rosemary. Rosemary had some delays in her development, and according to her family, she had been late to walk and talk, had extreme mood swings, and experienced seizures. Her mood swings were often violent. She was expelled from summer camp and boarding school, ending up in a convent. The nuns suspected she was sexually active because she snuck out at night. She also likely didn't progress beyond third or fourth grade education, and her father worried that her behavior might hurt his political career. And her mother, Rose Kennedy, was concerned that she couldn't participate in conversation about politics like the rest of the family. When she was 23, Joseph scheduled Rosemary's lobotomy with Dr. Walter Freeman and Dr. James Watts without telling her mother. Rosemary's doctors at the time had strongly recommended against it, but the procedure happened anyway. In November 1941, Rosemary was given a mild tranquilizer and James inserted the surgical instrument into her brain and swung it up and down to cut the brain tissue. Walter observed and asked Rosemary questions as James cut deeper into her brain. When her answers became incoherent, that's how he knew to stop cutting. The procedure, though, was a complete failure. And afterwards, she had the mental capacity of about a two-year-old. She couldn't walk, could barely speak, and she was incontinent. Like Anna Ruth, she also lost her personality. While she was able to relearn some basic functions, she was never the same again. And she was ultimately institutionalized and needed lifelong care. This failure of a lobotomy on a prominent public figure should have been the end of the procedure, but her father made sure it was kept secret from the public to protect his political career and their family's legacy. Walter Freeman eventually ditched his partner and developed his own lobotomy technique, an even more extreme and dangerous technique called the ice pick method, or transorbital lobotomy. He was inspired to create this technique when he saw an ice pick in his kitchen drawer. He claimed... This was a simple, effective approach that could be done anywhere by anyone in a matter of minutes using a surgical pick. A thin pointed rod that looks like an ice pick. The rod was inserted into the patient's eye socket and then into the brain. Once inserted, the end of the rod was struck with a hammer to sever the connective tissue in the frontal lobe of the brain. Like the traditional lobotomy, this method caused permanent physical and cognitive damage for many patients, as well as a number of deaths, as you could probably imagine. But Walter was never deterred. He gave demonstrations to live audiences to prove how easy and effective it was, and he continued to perform ice pick lobotomies on asylum patients for years. In the early 1950s, the West Virginia Board of Control authorized a lobotomy project at the asylum where 228 patients would receive a transorbital lobotomy. The purpose of the project was to get more patients released and reduce overcrowding. Four patients died during the project, two from brain hemorrhage and two from dehydration. Those that were considered a success were previously violent patients who were basically catatonic after the procedure. By the mid-1950s, many doctors had started treating mental illness with newly developed antipsychotic drugs instead of lobotomies and other barbaric treatment methods. However, within the asylum walls, Walter was free to continue performing lobotomies whenever he saw fit. 
In one case, he recommended a lobotomy for a young boy who had a moderate behavioral issue. He basically wasn't getting along with his stepmother. Seeing the ice pick lobotomy performed on a child is shocking by today's standards, especially for such a small complaint. About 4,000 lobotomies were performed at the asylum, and many previously healthy, fully functioning patients were left with permanent brain damage. When one of his patients died during her third lobotomy in 1967, Walter was finally forced to stop. And then he died a few years later. Patients in the asylum continued to revolt against the barbaric treatment methods, and the overcrowding just made things worse. The patients turned to violence and started attacking the orderlies, nurses, and doctors. They also attacked each other, and there were multiple cases of patients committing murders and rapes. In 1987, two patients attacked a third in their room. They tied a bedsheet around his neck and strangled him. Then they crushed his skull with the metal bedpost. Many employees reported being attacked on the job, and female staff members were raped by patients multiple times. One night, one of the nurses on duty went missing. When she didn't come back, her coworkers assumed she must have quit. But two months later, her dead body was found at the bottom of an abandoned staircase. In 1960, a medical center and morgue were added to the asylum to handle the increased injuries, physical illnesses, and deaths, as well as the patients deemed criminally insane. Deaths became a common occurrence, and the only part of the property that had been expanded since the asylum opened was the graveyard, with a total of three cemeteries on the property. In 1985, a journalist from the Charleston Gazette reported on the conditions of the asylum and once again exposed the horrific conditions. The facility was said to be dirty and unkempt, including feces smeared on the bathroom walls. Many patients were left naked, lying in their own filth with no way to clean or care for themselves. A reporter returned in 1992 and was shocked to find nothing had changed, and the public demanded the asylum be shut down. That same year, 46-year-old patient George Edward Bodie was attacked by 29-year-old patient David Michael Mason. Late one night, David tried to choke George, and during the violent fight that followed, George was killed. Earlier that same month, 21-year-old patient Brian Scott B. killed himself in the facility. A guard found his badly decomposed body eight days later. By this time, treatments for mental illness had progressed beyond locking people in asylums, and Kirkbride's humane building method had been largely discredited. The Transalegany Lunatic Asylum, first commissioned in the early 1850s, was forcibly closed in 1994, and the property was abandoned. I can't even believe that they were they were doing this kind of shit all the way up till 94 torturing people and getting away with it changing their lives entirely and just leave like treating people like absolute worse than animals just like yeah. scum living in horrid conditions i mean it's just there's no words for it right. I mean, it's like beyond belief that this really happened and all they gave the so patients long. though was just a tranquilizer like they didn't have anesthesia the back then oh like they were conscious throughout the whole oh, experience they were feeling, like oh. i can't imagine like it's just so fucked up yeah having surgery is already scary enough yeah now and even with you know anesthesia like it's still scary to go under <sighs> but to be brought into a room where you you know you're basically getting some uh novocaine shots mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you're, they're like, all right, time to insert the ice pick. Ugh. And they're literally like sticking the ice pick above your eye and your eye socket into your brain. Bring out the hammer. Like, <laughs> good I God. Even, oh, my man. God. Like, can't even imagine what that must have been like. 
absolutely insane. So with all this activity, this horrible activity, murder, rapes, just absolute, I can't even imagine the energy in that place was just like a dark, dark place. I mean, I couldn't even imagine how heavy and disgusting it must have just felt to be in that asylum. So as you can probably imagine, after all this sort of ended, that's when the paranormal activity really took it up a few notches. So before we get into the haunting of the Translegany Lunatic Asylum, we're going to take one more break and we'll be right back. Lights out. Let's talk about the haunting of this place. Some of the footage from the clips that I've seen are actually really crazy. There's a ton of activity here. And stories of spirits haunting the ground started decades before the asylum was closed even. Through the years, thousands of patients were admitted to the facility. Some of them were already experiencing severe mental health symptoms, but others were driven mad by the conditions that they were forced to live in. Among those who died there, over 2,000 former patients were buried in the cemetery on the property. 2,000 patients. Many more were claimed by family members and buried somewhere else. After just a few decades of operation, reports of unusual sounds and strange shadows were common. Some of these occurrences were downright terrifying. Multiple employees only stayed on the job for a few days before abruptly quitting and refusing to return. I bet that happened all the time when they walked in this place. I'm not working here. Like, oh my God. Yeah, I bet. This place is scary. Visitors and staff saw gurneys rolling through the empty hallways and ghostly figures lurking in the stairways. Balls of mysterious light floated in and out of patient rooms and spirits dressed in white watched them sleep. One doctor claimed a spirit followed her home and hasn't left her alone since. The most haunted area of the facility may be Ward 2 on the second floor where multiple violent events occurred. In one of the bathrooms, a patient stabbed a man 17 times and the man crawled from the bathroom leaving a trail of blood and made it to the nurse's desk where he died. Another room had two suicides occur there. The patients hung themselves from the curtain rod. Ghostly figures have often been seen wandering in and out of these rooms, and anyone who sees them is immediately overwhelmed by feelings of rage or despair. A voice has been recorded in this wing using electronic voice phenomena, or an EVP. And the voice said, Get out. The oldest section of the building, which was used as barracks during the Civil War, is plagued with the spirits of soldiers trapped in an endless war that they don't realize has ended. The most terrifying spirits are those of murderers and rapists who died in the asylum and were buried there. These spirits wander the grounds late at night searching for victims. Screams of terror can be heard coming from the electroshock room where hundreds of patients were endlessly tortured. Moaning, heavy breathing, and hysterical laughter have all been heard coming from empty patient rooms, especially those where patients were locked in confinement cribs or restraint chairs. Banging sounds, slamming doors, and random screams are all common, and visitors have often reported becoming overcome by strange emotions that didn't belong to them, and the feeling that they're being watched. A former patient named Ruth haunts the halls of the Civil War wing. When she was alive, she hated men, and whenever she saw male staff members, she would scream and throw things at them. After her death, she stayed in the facility, and men who have walked through her hallways 
have reported being shoved against the wall by a powerful invisible force and hearing an eerie whistling sound echoing through the nearby rooms. On the third floor, there's one room with so much negative energy, it can feel almost impossible to cross the threshold. It's called the bedpost murder room, and this is where the two patients tried to hang a third man and ended up crushing his skull with the metal bed frame. The two killers were extremely violent patients. A few years later, one of the killers, David Michael Mason, would kill George Bodie with his bare hands. The other was named Joe, and according to staff members, he was a serial killer before being admitted to the asylum. They were housed with the victim, 49-year-old Dean Metheny. Dean was a gentle, sweet man who was mentally impaired, and after a rare outburst, he was placed in this room. David and Joe tied his sheet around Dean's neck, pulled one end over a pipe, and lifted him up, strangling him until he passed out. And they did this over and over again. And then while he was lying on the floor, they placed the metal bedpost on the side of his head and jumped on the bed until the post pierced his skull. The spirit of one of the killers is now trapped in the room, surrounded by the feelings of terror and dread that he caused. A patient named Jim James, or Big Jim, also haunts the third floor, along with a nurse named Elizabeth. Big Jim allegedly likes cigarettes and may communicate with paranormal investigators if they offer him one. Jim and another spirit, a poker player named Eddie, both like to interfere with flashlights. These spirits have also been known to open doors and push gurneys through the halls. A murderer named Slewfoot killed multiple people in one of the bathrooms on the upper floor. He was then murdered himself, and his ghost now roams these halls, banging on pipes and slamming doors and windows. Some have heard the unsettling sound of Slewfoot's deranged laughter. Some of the ghosts in the asylum are those of children. A girl named Lily was born in the asylum in its early years of operation. Her mother was never released, so Lily spent her entire life there. When she was just nine years old, she developed pneumonia and died. And her spirit stayed in the asylum to be close to her mother. Dressed in all white, she sits in a room on the fourth floor surrounded by old toys, waiting for someone to come play with her. Those who walk by the room have seen toys moving around, balls rolling across the floor, and a music box playing on its own. If someone steps into the room, they hear the sound of Lily either laughing or crying. The fourth floor is home to several other spirits, one called the Creeper crawl slowly along the floor looking for people to pull to the ground. A translucent black mass has been seen floating through the walls, drifting in and out of rooms aimlessly. The spirit of a soldier named Jacob seems to be trapped on the fourth floor and may not know the war is over as he strolls confidently through the halls looking for his fellow soldiers. So, so much spiritual energies in this place i mean there's so much just left behind from all of the hurt and anguish and pain that was experienced in this place i mean it makes 100 percent sense that all this is happening and i do really do believe all of these spirits are still there and just confined to this asylum that they can't escape in 1990 the trans allegheny lunatic asylum was listed on the national register of historic places 
It's the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America and the second largest in the world, next to Moscow Kremlin. After the facility was closed in 1994, the property was abandoned and the local economy was devastated and is still recovering. The facility sat empty for years. Medical equipment, restraint devices, beds, furniture, toys, chains, and wheelchairs were all left behind. The 242,000 square foot building was auctioned off in August 2007, and Joe Jordan purchased it for $1.5 million and immediately began a restoration project. The plot of land is 666 acres, and there are 13 buildings, which are two significant numbers that many people believe confirm that the property is cursed. Located at 71 Asylum Drive in historic Weston, West Virginia, the facility is now run by Joe's daughter, Rebecca Jordan Gleason, and is open for guided historical and paranormal tours. The money collected from the tours is used to preserve and maintain the asylum and surrounding property. During these tours, visitors often leave toys, coins, cigarettes, and cigars as offerings for the spirits. The central section of the building has been fully restored and includes a museum. One of the patient wards has also been restored, but the remaining 23 haven't been touched since the building was abandoned in 1994. The most frequent visitors to the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum are professional ghost hunters and those who study the paranormal. These have included Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters, Ghost Hunters Academy, the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures, and the reality show Paranormal Challenge, and many more. As more experts have studied the property, the paranormal activity has continued to increase. There have been accounts of full-body apparitions and people being strangled and shoved. Even seasoned ghost hunters have found themselves shaking in terror. Jack Osborne and Katrina Weidman of the Travel Channel theorize that the asylum has held on to so much negative energy from the past because of the materials used to build it. During their visit, they encountered a spirit named Jane, and according to the surviving medical records, patient Jane Harvey hung herself in her room in 1884. They also used a piece of artwork a painted mask made by one of the two killers from the bedpost murder room to channel that spirit. A psychic medium who toured the property that night felt the presence of Jane in her former room. She also described the violent scene from the bedpost murder room, including a key detail that's not widely known. The victim, Dean, was mute and couldn't scream for help. There's an intelligence haunting here. Like this one seems nonverbal, and I just keep seeing him on the floor, like looking up, like he's he's from a prone position. Later that night, the investigators picked up on Dean's presence using a REM pod, a device used to detect paranormal energy. They made contact with Dean, a childlike spirit who liked to play. And when they brought in the mask made by one of his killers, the spirit became frightened left the room and didn't come back until it was removed. The sci-fi's ghost hunters reported seeing the image of a figure crouching down and being suddenly pulled out of the room. The art director Grant Wilson called it one of the most disturbing images he'd ever seen. Dude, the guy just freaking crouched down in the corner and disappeared. In addition to these professional paranormal investigators, guests can book private tours and even stay overnight in the facility. Mmm, that just sounds so fun. The overnight tours are promoted as being not for the faint of heart and guests must be 12 years or older, and all minors need to be accompanied by an adult. Visitors can bring along a camping chair to rest, but are warned it's highly unlikely anyone will be able to actually sleep. 
Those who dare visit the asylum can feel the presence of hundreds of spirits who have lived and died there, many of them still tormented by the pain and fear they felt in their final hours. So that is the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Sounds like an absolutely terrifying place based on all of the activity that's there. And in not in a good way. You know, it's one thing to experience paranormal activity and be like, oh, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> but this seems like a, oh shit, kind of kind of feeling the entire time. Like, <sighs> I mean, so many spirits there. Uh, pissed off ones too. Yeah. Angry. Right. That are just vengeful. They're just like, my life was horrible, so I'm going to just haunt the shit out of this place. Yeah. And try to cause fear to everybody that comes through. I don't know, though. At the same time, I want to visit this place. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, see I mean, if you can capture something. If there's going to be paranormal activity, it's going to be at this place. Yeah. Right? I right. mean, out of all of the places out there, this is the place where this seems like you got to be guaranteed spot. to see something. Yeah. Like, if you go there and you go on a tour, nothing's worse than going on a yeah. ghost tour and absolutely nothing happens. Right. And you're just like, fuck. I think this would be a great place for any skeptics out there on the paranormal activity to go yeah. to. <laughs> Especially like stay overnight. Yeah. Like, oh, you're not scared. You don't believe in the paranormal. Right. All right. Stay 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? In the bedpost murder room. Oh, my God. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think their, their opinion would change. <laughs> yeah. I think anybody's opinion would change. I mean, this uh, place sounds absolutely terrifying. And just how big it is, too. Yeah. Massive, massive building. Right. I'm like, only $1.5 million? That's like that's a pretty good deal for (laughs) that big of a place. But I guess, you know, they had to auction it off because who wants to buy that? I mean, what do you do with a giant haunted attraction? I mean, you could make a really cool, legit haunted attraction there if you wanted to. Or like Like, turn it into a haunted hotel or something. Yeah, what if like Russ McCamey bought a place like that? (laughs) And it's like the extreme, Yeah, like he reenacts this. Completely. Could you imagine if like Russ had owned this place <laughs> and then he's like getting the ice pick out oh and you're like strapped God. to a chair and you're you've already been like terrified yeah. and he's like coming at you with don't like, don't give McKinney man like, any ideas. Him, I know yeah. that idea. That would fuck some people up. Dude, yeah. Man. I don't know. Hopefully, I mean, I would love to visit this place, not gonna lie. I want to visit yeah. this place one day because I, I want to experience this for myself, but I guess I got my own paranormal activity. Yeah. All right. We're already me. experiencing my it own, here. Yeah. My own spirit friend over here. So maybe you'll make an appearance in this episode. We won't know until we look at posts. So, so exactly. I'll cross our fingers. I did welcome whatever it was to join us for this episode. And I'm sure we're yeah. talking about all of these hauntings and paranormal activity that if anything is here, maybe uh, yeah. they'll show up for this one. It's familiar discussion for it. So. Like, <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. it's something peaceful. Like hopefully yeah. it's, I'm hoping that maybe it's just like something transdimensional or something, something that's like just here checking us out, like yeah, curious, observing right. versus like I'm a pissed off spirit that died here, and you're right. you're you guys are doing this shit on my sacred ground or something. I hope if that was the case, we'd be seeing aggressive symptoms, which we're not. So not yet, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, at least. I haven't been grabbed, like, <laughs> yanked out of my chair. Right. God, that would really freak me out, though. That, that would. Me but for sure. So far, so good. It seems, and it seems to be contained to within this studio in my backyard. Well, but, well, I've there has my been own. a few things in the house, but not since, which yeah. is interesting. So I, I haven't been a target since I last. Maybe saw it's it. you. Maybe you're just carrying this thing around with you, and you're bringing it over here every time. It could, could be. I guess we'll find out. But yeah, let <laughs> us know what you guys think of those clips of the orb from the last episode, and what you think of this asylum. Would you visit it? Would you stay overnight? 
let us know. But that is it for today's episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please, please subscribe to us on YouTube. We'd really appreciate it. Also, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. It does really help us out. It's a free way to support the show. And we will be back next week with another very spooky episode. But until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>